All right, so a couple of things, right? Some background information, because whenever we start a new book, we have to give a little bit of background, and we're not going to spend the entire morning talking about background. If you do want more background on the book of Acts, I would encourage you to look up the Bible Project's video on the book of Acts. There's also a lot of resources that if you just want to ask me, I can point you in that direction if you want more background. But as for now, let's talk a little bit about this book. The first thing I want to talk about is the author of the book of Acts. We know, what we know for a fact is that the author of the book of Acts is the same person who wrote the gospel of Luke. We know this from the first verse and how it echoes the first few verses of Luke's gospel, right? It says, in the first book, O Theophilus. And so all we have to do is look back to the first couple of verses of the gospel of Luke. And we hear, again, that Luke is trying, or this person who wrote the book, which I believe is Luke, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So basically what we're looking at is part two of a two-volume work. Part two of a two-volume work. And, and while the book itself does not identify as being written by Luke, there is some evidence along the way that kind of shows us most likely we're dealing with this guy, Luke. And so one of the primary hints that it was Luke who penned both Luke and Acts is found in what scholars have referred to as the we passages of the book of Acts. I'm just going to read two of them for you. Chapter 16, verse 10, it says, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. In chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, it says this, These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to Troas, where we stayed for seven days. One pastor puts it like, these, like this. These we passages in the latter half of Acts line up with Luke's presence in Paul's ministry as a co-worker, as we see in Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. So, so there's evidence pointing to the fact that it's Luke who wrote this particular book. Now, there's also some external evidence. That was internal evidence, meaning in the text. But there's external evidence as well. Other evidence is that early manuscripts, some of the earliest manuscripts of Luke's gospel, bear his name in the title. So the early church was already identifying Luke as the author of this book. And early church history seems to agree that Luke is the author of both the gospel, and the book of Acts. We see this in things like the Moratorian Canon, which, just a little bit of church history, is named after its discoverer, Ludovico Antonio Moratori, which is such so near to my heart, right? Um, <laughs> contains our earliest list of the books in the New Testament. While the fragment itself dates from the 7th or 8th century, the list it contains was originally written in Greek and dates back to the end of the 2nd century, around 180. Now, a, little, a couple more people, Irenaeus and Tertullian, are all people who identify Luke as the author of this book. And while there aren't too many compelling reasons to deny Luke's authorship, it's not really that important either. If he wrote the book or not, the details captured in this book reveal that we're dealing with real history. We're dealing with real history. Now, when it comes to when this book was written... Most likely we're looking at around the mid-60s. There are some disputes about that, but again, this doesn't really affect the overall message of the book. It's a book of theological history. 
covering roughly the, roughly the period from 30 to 62 AD. And so what do I mean by theological history? In other words, the inspired writers of the Bible are absolutely capturing history, 100%. I would never deny that. But they are capturing history in order to make a theological point, to tell us the story of God and how he is interacting with the world through the early church followers. Early church, or early church, excuse me. And so the point is, there are many things that probably occurred between 30 and 62 AD, yet we only have 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and even the stories in the book of Acts are structured in a way to tell us more about God and how he is working in and through his people. And so when we look at the book of Acts, we are looking at history. We are looking at the history of the early church. But more importantly, as we're going to look at in just a second, and while most of your Bibles probably say the Acts of the Apostles, and then some people have argued the Acts of the Holy Spirit, I think actually a better way of understanding this book is the Acts of the resurrected King, Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit as he manifests himself in the, in the local church. This is the acts of Jesus that we're looking at. And in fact, the work that we do as a church, those good works that God has prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them, guess what? Those are the works of Jesus. Because what does the Bible teach us about the church? None other than that we are the body of Christ. And that is not just a metaphor we are the body of Christ. So let's take a look and see how this whole thing plays out. Um, if you have a bulletin in, in front of you, we're looking at that first section in the first book, verses 1 through 5. And let's take a look at 1 and 2 for a quick second. It says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so in the first book, which we know is Luke's gospel, it says that he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And this little word began is extremely important for how we are to understand the entire book of Acts. Yes, it is the story of the apostles and the early witnesses. Yes, it is the story of the Holy Spirit and how the church is empowered through him. And yes, it is our own story as we seek to follow Jesus in his mission. But there is more to the story than that. Theologian and pastor John Stott says it like this. Luke's first two verses set Christianity apart from all other religions. Catch that? From all. All other religions. These other religions regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. Luke says Jesus only began his ministry during his lifetime. For after his resurrection, ascension, and gift of the Spirit, he continued his work. He continued his work, and I, I lost my spot. First and foremost, through the unique foundation ministry of his chosen apostles, and subsequently through the post-apostolic church of every period and every place. That's us. That's 
every period and every place. This, then, is the kind of Jesus Christ we believe in. He is both the historical Jesus who lived and the contemporary Jesus who lives now. In other words, as one pastor has said, the story of Jesus is incomplete without the story of the church. And the story of the church continues the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus sets the pattern for how the, the church ought to live out its life. And so I don't want to be confusing here. We do not mean that his atoning work on the cross is incomplete. But we do mean that the work that he set out to accomplish is incomplete without the church. This is part of his plan. This is part of his plan. To be faithful witnesses is to serve as an extension or a conduit of God's grace in this world. We are the body of Christ. This is why we at Redeemer Fellowship talk about sharing together in the life of Christ. Because we are present day participants and actors in the story of Jesus as it's being played out through his people. So I want to talk about this idea of being a conduit. Right, if you've ever used an extension cord, and I imagine every single person has used an extension cord, and, and have you ever had an experience where the extension cord just wasn't long enough, where it's like you were trying to get to a, a specific spot, and if you have an old home, maybe you have fewer outlets. My basement in my home right now has, has outlets, and, and some of them are just two-prong outlets, so you have to get those little adapters to plug in, and it's a whole big ordeal, but there are times where you can't get to the thing you want to get to with that extension cord because it's not long enough, or you do have a long enough extension cord, and what I want to use this whole extension cord illustration to kind of get into our minds is that we are, through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, an extension cord that is running from the throne of God in heaven into this world. We are actually delivering grace through the work of the Holy Spirit and through the power of Jesus in the life of the church to this world so that we can say as the world looks at us, they are catching a glimpse of what God is like. They're catching a glimpse of what God is like. So we need to be those conduits of grace, those extension cords running from heaven into this world so that we might actually build a bridge from heaven into the surrounding world around us. That's kind of what the church is. It's these kingdom outposts that are placed all over the world, and we serve in a kingdom outpost here in Tom's River. And so we need to be thinking about our life as the church, as bridge builders between heaven and earth, between heaven and the Jersey Shore. Why? So that people might catch a glimpse of what God is like. And I know I say that a lot. I say that a lot because I truly believe that is one of the main points of Scripture, that heaven and earth are coming together, and it starts with us. Well, it started with Jesus, but it continues with us until one day in the new heavens and the new earth, they will come together, and we will be with Jesus for all eternity. So that's where we're going in the book of Acts for the next five or six months. I think it's six. That's why I keep going back and forth. So let's continue on, verses 3 through 5. It says this. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
So let's take a look. And we're not going to be able to pick apart every single detail of this text, but a few things that come to mind as I look through these verses. So the majority of Jesus' teaching throughout his time on earth was about what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And now, upon his resurrection, as we'll see, his ascension, and as he sits next to his father, the kingdom has now been inaugurated. And we just saw an inauguration, right? A few weeks ago, President Biden was inaugurated, beginning his reign. That's a weird word for a president, right? His his. His administration, thank you. I'm like, what's the word? His administration. So Jesus inaugurated the kingdom when he rose up from the dead. When he rose up from the dead. So the question that I'm wrestling is, what is the kingdom of God? So a simple definition that I think might be helpful. The rule and reign of Christ. The rule and reign of Christ, which began through the nation of Israel, was fulfilled through the person and work of Christ, and is now being extended through the spirit-filled work of the church. In other words, as we live out the mission of God, by loving God and loving neighbor, we become those conduits or extension cords of God's grace in this world. That's what we mean by the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Christ. And we talked about this over a year ago when we went through the Sermon on the Mount. That is what the kingdom of God looks like. For us as followers of Jesus, that's how we're to behave as citizens within the kingdom. That's how we are to extend the grace of God as citizens of the kingdom. And then it says this in verse 4, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. I think this is so interesting that it starts in Jerusalem. The gospel of Luke is commonly said to move toward Jerusalem. I'm not sure if you've ever caught that as you read through the Gospel of Luke, but Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. For what purpose? To die. To die. He's making his way to Jerusalem to die. But the thing that is so fascinating about the book of Acts is that it begins in Jerusalem and it goes out to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It starts there and heads out to cover the entire planet. And so Jesus heads toward Jerusalem. The church spreads out from Jerusalem. And then it says this. It says, while staying there, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, in verse 4, for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so there's this idea of a promise. And where does this promise come from? One of the places is Joel chapter 2, which we'll cover in a few weeks when we look at Pentecost. But I think it's really important that we wrap our minds around this idea of being baptized in the Spirit. What does baptize mean? It means to submerge, to deluge, or I don't know if you can use that as a, um, a verb, but whatever, um, or flood, right? So basically, you are flooded with the Holy Spirit. But what is really important that I want to make a point of is that while, yes, individually we are flooded with the Holy Spirit, but if we're looking at the promise of Joel chapter 2, he says that all flesh, all types of people, this is one of those promises that shows us that the redemption story of God, of Yahweh, and of Jesus was always about the nations, was always about every single people group that exists under the sun. Not every single person, but every single tribe, tongue, and nation will be flooded 
with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what does that Spirit do for us? It empowers us. It actually makes us a a, a viable extension cord from heaven. Because if you plug an extension cord into an outlet that doesn't work, guess what? You have no power. You have no power. And I'm reminded of Back to the Future when he rides the hoverboard on the water. Don't you know that we can't go on whatever because you need power or whatever? No, no, bad joke. Never mind. Anyway, moving on. The text continues. Witnesses from Jerusalem, verses 6 through 8. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And so here we see the Great Commission. And actually, the Great Commission serves as the structure of the book of Acts, as we will see as it unfolds, that the book of Acts actually takes us from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth as it ends in Rome. And and the thing to know about Rome is that if ideas got to Rome, they got everywhere. If ideas got to Rome, they got everywhere. It reminds me, and I'm not saying this in like an ethnocentric sort of way, it does remind me of how influential America is on the world, for better or for worse. And Rome is that sort of place. When when things got to Rome, they went everywhere. But let's take a look. Verse 6. So when they come together, they asked them, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's an interesting question. It's an interesting question because it reveals what's going on in the hearts of his people. Because they still don't get it. They still don't get that this promise of the Holy Spirit, that this whole entire redemption story is is a universal endeavor. They're still concerned about their country. And so there are these little little breaths of, of nationalism sort of happening right here in the text. Right here, talking about, like, yeah, so, so when, when do we get ours, Jesus? When are you finally going to lift us up as a nation? Make us the ones who, you know, we know we ought to be. Like, we're Israel. We're your people. Come on, lift us up, Lord. It's time. And I love what happens here. It's almost like he doesn't even, he doesn't even give, like, credence to what they say. He said, it's not time for you to know times, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. Power for what? To be my witnesses. And so, yeah, he's he's kind of he's kind of chopping that nationalism down to side, down to size. He's also chopping that end time sort of fanaticism down to size. He's like, he's like, yeah, you, you need not worry about times or dates. Right? We can't live our lives looking for signs of the times. Like, like oh, I, th- I think Jesus might be coming back this year. Oh, I think he might be coming back this year. I think he might be coming back in the next six months. That's not for us to know. That's not for us to know. And so he's cutting that down to size. And then he's bringing to the forefront his entire point. His entire point, but, and when you see a but in the Bible, that's, that's an adversative word. That means, like, everything I just said, listen to that. Now I want you to really live into this. Like, yeah, this, but this. Yeah, this is true, but it changes at this moment. And what happens? But you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, being a faithful witness means that we are to allow ourselves to be used by God to bring the message of the kingdom to every single demographic we encounter. That's the point. That's what matters. That's what Jesus is getting at. And so, in other words, whatever is distracting us from the mission of God, and man, we are, we are just like flooded with distractions, no pun intended. Whatever's distracting us from the mission of God, whether it be our own nationalistic tendencies, our preoccupation with the end of the world, or whatever it is, we need to actually repent of those things. Push them aside and follow Jesus. Because all this other stuff that we get obsessed with is actually nonsense. It doesn't produce any fruit in us. It doesn't make us look more like Jesus. It distracts from everything God is calling us to. It distracts from everything God is calling us to. And I think when it comes to the mission of God, we often overthink it. I overthink it too. It's like, well, what, what can we do? I want to make sure we do it perfectly. I want to make sure we do it right. I want to make sure we, we hit it just so, so we don't ruin anything. But the reality is, I would rather us just take the chance and mess up and then figure it out after the fact. I'm reminded of if you've ever read or watched The Magic School Bus with your kids or if you're a kid and you've listened to it, Miss Frizzle used to say, take chances, make mistakes, get messy. Take chances, make mistakes, get messy messy. I genuinely think those are some pretty good marching orders for the people of God. Like, let's take some chances. And in taking chances, we're going to make mistakes. I guarantee you, I know over this last, you know, six months since, since I've been lead pastor here at Redeemer Fellowship, I can assure you I've made mistakes. I know for a fact I've made mistakes. And sometimes I'm, I'm kept up at night thinking about those mistakes that I've made. And then, and then my brothers on the elder team just say like, yeah, John, you got to relax. Seski's always telling me, like, all right, it's all good. It's good. It's okay. It's fine. Come on. We're going to move forward on this. I'm like, all right, all right. Pete talks me off a ledge. Tim talks me off a ledge. Lee talks me off a ledge. Debbie talks me off a ledge daily. But that's what we're to do. We're to jump in. We're to take risks. And, and there are things that we're working on. I, I assure you. I assure you there are things that we're working on. And, and it is hard right now because of COVID. It makes everything we want to do just there's like that extra thing. Right? It's, like, it's like if you ever like, like jammed your finger and every single thing you try to do, it's like, ah, but, ah my finger. It's like, ah, it's like, it's like everything we try to do, whether it's the church, whether it's life, whether it's a holiday, it's like, ah, but COVID, ah, but COVID. It's like that jammed finger that just won't heal. And it's like, ah, come on, can we just get past it? And, and we're going to have a jammed finger for a while. We're going to have a jammed finger for a while, but, but God is still calling us to, to move forward. And, and one of the ways I want to continue banging this drum is, is getting involved. Join that community group that you've been hesitating to join. Write that email to Rich that you've been hesitating to write. It's like, oh, do I want to join a community group? Do I really want to do that twice a month? That, that's it. It's twice a month. Two hours a month. This is not like a, you know, we're not asking you to give away your firstborn here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, we got to jump in. We got to jump in. We got to take those risks we got to allow ourselves to stumble and fall and allow God to lift us back up again. 
Because that's the beauty of this thing we call Christianity, is that we have an advocate. Jesus is going to care for us. He's going to take care of us. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for faithfulness. And we can be faithful. We can walk in faithfulness because we have been flooded with the Holy Spirit. We can walk in faithfulness. And the beauty is, is that when we make those mistakes, that the Holy Spirit's going to convict us of sin and we can repent. And we can repent and guess what? Jesus is faithful to forgive us. And that's such a beautiful promise that we have as followers of Jesus. The text goes on, verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And now, like right off the bat, let's just admit this is, this is a confusing situation. Like, what was that like? Like, did he just literally float up into the air? Like, that's, that's kind of what we believe, right? And, and I'm sure there's more nuance to it, and I'm sure we don't fully understand the mystery of the ascension, but, but it seems like he floated up. I mean, that sounds good to me. I'm in. I mean, that's, that's what it says here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with it. He was, the Bible says he was lifted up, or as it says in Luke's gospel, he was carried into heaven. So what is this thing that we call the ascension? Herman Bavink, um, Reformed theologian who's written massive volumes on Reformed dogmatics and theology, he says it like this. He says, the ascension is the entry into the state of glory that Christ obtains in heaven. And that is described with the term sitting at the right hand of God. And so the ascension is his exaltation. It's like his coronation day. It's, it's like, yeah, he rose from the dead, and now he is heading to his throne. He's heading up to the throne. In other words, as I said, the ascension is Jesus' exaltation where he is lifted up into the heavenly realm. And what we're witnessing through the ascension of Jesus is what N.T. Wright calls a dramatic and unexpected fulfillment of Daniel 7, where the human figure who suffered at the hands of the evil powers of the world is now being exalted into the very presence of God himself, there to receive kingly power. A really great book is called How God Became King by N.T. Wright, if you're ever interested in, in this kind of idea. Like, how did, how did Jesus become king? And so what does it say in Daniel 7, 13 and 14? It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and, king, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All that to say, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. That's what the ascension is about. That he is now being lifted up to his throne, where he will sit at the right hand of his father, and rule over all of creation for all of eternity. And those powers, those powers that put him on the cross 
And I'm not just talking about Rome and the religious leaders because while they were, you know, pawns in this game, it was those powers and authorities, but the beauty of the powers and authorities, the, those spiritual sort of entities, the, the demons, if you will, is that they don't function apart from God's authority. They don't function apart from God's authority. And the beautiful thing is that as he's seated in those heavenly places, and we're seated there with him, if you remember from Ephesians, but as he's seated in those heavenly places, he stands in authority over all powers, spiritual powers, national powers, oppressive powers, and one day he is going to crush them. And in fact, it says in the book of Romans that he will crush those powers under our feet, under the feet of the church. And so that gets back to this whole thing. We looked in the Gospel of Luke at all that Jesus began to do, but now he's continuing to act through the people of God, through the Spirit indwelt, the Spirit-flooded people of God. And so why is this important? What makes this backdrop so, um, so profound, right? It says in verse 10, And while they were gazing into the heavens, he went, and behold, two men stood by with white robes. And so they're confronted by these two men. And basically, these two men are saying, oh, what, what are you guys doing? What are you looking at? Like, come on, snap out of it. I usually snap better than that. There you go. Snap out of it. You got work to do. You actually have marching orders. Get back to Jerusalem and wait. Stop staring into the sky. Get back to Jerusalem and wait because something's going to come not many days from now. And you better be ready. And if you're standing here just staring up at the sky like this, you're not going to be ready for what God has for you. And so while we are called to, to wait in anticipation for the coming of Jesus, we're not called to wait like this. Is he here yet? What do you think? Is he coming now? Hey, that's not what we're called to. No, we're called to have our hands to the plow while we wait. William Jennings, theologian, says it like this. Watching Jesus and watching for Jesus was and is a significant temptation for his disciples. Such watching can easily undermine movement and easily undermine the priority of the journey. What's the point? Jesus is now seated on the throne, ruling over his kingdom. And we are called to live out our calling as disciples, not wondering when he might come back and counting the days, but rather we are to be found with our hands to the plow, sharing together in the life of Christ by loving God and neighbor, showing the world Jesus in both word and deed. Remember, we're conduits of God's grace in this world. And we have been deluged by the Holy Spirit, unleashed into the world to be used by God in the spread of his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Redeemer Fellowship, this is where the book of Acts is taking us. We are going to take a journey that I am praying will not only transform us individually, but will transform us as a church. We are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. This is a high calling, Redeemer Fellowship. For those of you seated with us this morning and those of you watching online, this is the highest of callings. We participate in the work of Jesus. 
And he's calling us to things. He's calling us to things. And yeah, we're walking around with a jam finger right now. But that doesn't change the fact that with jam finger and all, our hand needs to be on the plow. We need to be pushing forth through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be a faithful witness. That we are moving. That we are working. That we are in participation with Jesus as he extends his kingdom throughout the earth, throughout the Jersey Shore. Reach out to Rich, join a community group. Reach out to Ellie, volunteer to teach when we're ready to set Redeemer Kids in motion. Let's get this thing moving, Redeemer Fellowship. God has plans for us. And I struggled this morning. If I'm perfectly honest, I struggled. I came into the building. And it's hard, right? It's hard. There's, it feels like there's so few of us right now. It feels like there's so few of us. But to be encouraged, if you are on the members meeting call, there's still a number of us. There's still a number of us, and some of them are at home, and that's totally fine right now. It's not just what you look, if you look around, it's not just us. It's also the people that are watching at home. We are all a part of this family. We are all a part of this family. And God has plans for us. I, I, he has to have plans for us. He's not going to let us just die. I don't think that's what he's doing. That just wouldn't make sense with what God has already been doing in our midst. So we need to continue staying the course. We need to continue fighting the good fight. We need to continue, as Miss Frizzle says, taking chances, getting messy. We need to do these things. This is what God has for us. This is what the book of Acts is going to show us. That something the size of a mustard seed can expand exponentially so that it covers the entire earth. That's the movement of the Spirit in this book. From a few ragtag disciples to the ends of the earth. And so as we come to the table this morning, as we come to the table, I want us to come with that in mind. I want us to come thinking that what we have before us, this mission, right, this proclamation of the good news in both word and deed, right? Because every time we eat that bread and we drink that cup, what do we do? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, what we are doing is we are proclaiming the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God started with death. Oh, that's amazing. And so as we look around and we might feel beat up and some of us might even feel as though we are dead. That didn't stop Jesus. That didn't stop Jesus. And that's encouraging to me and I pray that's encouraging to you as well. So let me pray before we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this calling, Lord, this, this high calling. Father, I pray for us, Lord. I pray for us as a church. I pray for us as a people, Lord. Lord, that we would be sensitive to the Spirit's leading in our lives, both individually and corporately as a church. I pray for some of these opportunities that are right now just, just kind of, uh, they're small, but, but we're, I pray that you would continue to give wisdom, Lord God, as we, as we work through it and figure out what the next step is. God, I pray for us. Give us grace. Give us peace. Give us comfort. 
but give us that risk-taking sort of energy to, to step out in faith, to be those faithful witnesses on this journey with you, to be those extension cords from heaven into Tom's River. Lord, we are plugged into the most powerful source that exists, the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus up from the dead. We have it. Lord, let us rely on him. Let us walk in him. Let us be moved by him. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray.